Hello, and welcome back to the Self Healer Soundboard. This episode is being released on Father's Day here in the United States. And while we did a father wound episode last Father's Day, that's a previous episode called The Father Wound, that is a great resource in talking about the conversation in our relation with our fathers and father figures and fatherhood in general. Um, even our own lives and relationships have ebbed and flowed and changed um, with our own fathers over this last year. And we know that each and every human being on this planet also has an experience of a father or father figure in some way that they are dealing with and experiencing. So we want to open up a conversation more free-flowing um, again today to just honor this very deep and very emotional connection that we all have, whether or not that's even on the surface to be aware of or acknowledged. And as we talk about, when we talk about either of our parent figures, um, we acknowledge the foundational role that those early relationships play in our adult relationships outside, of course, these moments in time, um, whether it's on the mother side of the spectrum or the father side of the spectrum, where, again, here in the States, we designate a day, which usually given um, retail and advertising and the desire to sell cards and gifts expands beyond that day. So for a lot of us, we're met with outside of the patterns in our current relationships that are remnants of those two early relationships. Many of us are really highlighted those or we have those early relationships really highlighted at these predetermined moments in time where and I think you were even sharing with me, you know, the reality of our inboxes. You know, we open up our email and we're reminded if we watch television, it's all of these reminders of, again, this relationship, which as all of our minds will do when we hear someone say, Father, our mind will immediately associate with our father-based experience. And with that will come all of the emotions that we might be feeling. So saying that to say really simply, these moments in time for a lot of us can be challenging, can activate really old wounds um, and can come out in a lot of different ways in terms of emotions and in terms of how we navigate the relationship with our active fathers on or around those moments in time or those days to celebrate them. <laughs> the email inbox got me personally <laughs> over the last few days because it's my email is just inundated with advertisements. Get your father's dip. This father's day is around the corner and we're such a consumer culture uh, so I also acknowledge I'm speaking because I can only speak as a United States citizen. So here in the U.S. and the type of ads that I'm seeing and getting. And I know other countries celebrate or have a designated day for fathers or fatherhood, different times or different months around the year. So we are speaking here to this conversation of Father's Day in the U.S., though that layer can be removed and really broadened out to this parent figure relationship, because even father, I want to expand on just a little before we dive into this, because everyone has a, a different context. And especially now in this day and age and our current events and the different conversations and everyone's opinions being out there, which I think is a beautiful thing. I want to be mindful that we often go into a shaming place then. If someone else has a differing opinion or context or believes some a different belief, really, then they're automatically shamed or wrong. So 
We'll preface this conversation just with an openness to that this is relating to whatever father or father figure means for you, whatever that experience is for you, whatever context is there for you, whatever those human beings, whoever they are or are not, that's going to be individual for you. The journeys that we speak on are unique to our own personal journeys and, of course, what we witness, but by no means are any of these conversations going to be a one-size-fits-all. I appreciate you you acknowledging that um, at the beginning of this conversation, Jenna, and that is to say, I actually saw a comment in our self-healers portal where a member posted a question um, specifically around being an orphan. I think it was around the father relationship where that particular member had no relationship with their father figure. I think they left on or around their birth. So the question was some version of, is that a wound? If I don't even have this human physically present in my life, can I still be carrying the wounding from that? And while I can't you know, speak from that own lived experience because my father was physically present in my life, just again, to, to preface this entire conversation. And I think this is a, a quite a common one that some of us can relate to who didn't have that present father figure. Absolutely. Whenever any parent or caregiver wasn't consistently present, their absence 100% creates a version of the abandonment wound. So another, I think, important starting point is to acknowledge that many of you listening, if you didn't ever have an active relationship with a physically present father, this conversation absolutely can still apply to you because in the absence can be suffering and adaptations and coping and uh, relationship dynamics that were created in that person's physical absence. It's such an important thing to acknowledge. And I realized last year, so probably this time last year, right after we finished recording the father wound episode, I realized my brother, Jake, had just passed away a couple months earlier that November. And I had learned very shortly before Jake's passing that he has a daughter. And he has a daughter named Kara, who just celebrated her 21st birthday. And if you know the math of his, this woman, now Kara, 21, and Jake, who passed when he was 36, that meant that he had Kara, unbeknownst to him, <laughs> when he was 15, which is when he lost his virginity, this one-time thing. And this is an outward conversation he would express to people because it's the reality of how his daughter came about into the world. And it was one of those ancestry websites that his daughter was also on that I am on and it linked us and I am her aunt and 100% matched to her niece. And she looks just like Jake. She also looks just like my twin brother and just like me. So there was kind of a deep knowing in my gut before we even had this confirmation, though she came to mind after the episode and it was so new to me that I hadn't really been simmering in the fact that Jake was a dad to, or was a father at least, to Kara, who had just met him the year before he died and created this relationship with him. I have a beautiful video of them meeting for the first time, actually on her 19th birthday was the first time that they met. And then I think he died when she was turning 20 or shortly after that. And this is someone who was adopted. Kara was adopted as a baby to a mother and a father who are the people that she will call mom and dad still today. 
And yet this is also a woman who has had this seed or this pit and longing her whole life in wondering, who is my dad? Now, she thought that her dad was actually someone else who had also been involved around the same time with her biological mother. She knew her biological mother. And this other person who she thought was her dad wanted nothing to do with her, Didn't wasn't interested in creating a relationship and being a dad and even really knowing that that was his biological daughter. And when it came to the surface that Jake was actually her father, there was a there was a beautiful, loving, almost like a completion to a wondering in some way. And Kara got that experience, though then shortly after, this dad that she just met and has wondered about for 19 years also is now dead. And there's so much wondering and there's so much heartbreak for what could have been or what might have been. And now this is a, a person who their whole life up until that age 19, which is still young, had that pit, even though they had a mother and a father present who lovingly took care of her, she still knew that there was someone else out there that had created her, where her biology comes from, where her DNA comes from, where even if she's not around them, a lot of her generational habits and patterns and conditioning are also passed down from. So a big moment to just highlight for everyone, whether this pertains to you or you know someone who has been through foster care or been adopted and not known their parent, um, I want to acknowledge that because we really left that out on the last episode that even if your parent wasn't there or maybe they passed or they are estranged, there are so many people in the world who don't even end up getting adopted and just exist in the foster care system and don't actually ever come to the full circle of knowing or meeting who that father figure or parent actually was. I love this. And I want to touch upon the kind of state of wondering. And again, the reality, if you've listened to many of our conversations about our past conversations about childhood, I mean, we are in that state of wondering. Mm -hmm. We don't know. We don't have the emotional maturity to understand why, for whatever reason it is that a father figure might choose to leave us, leave our relationship, leave the home. And in that state of wondering, we're, we're not, it, it isn't comfortable to just be like, oh, I don't know. And I'll just keep it moving. Uh, we need to know. We have that sense of control and we look to the world around us to gain that sense of knowing. We listen to how others, the other maybe parent who is present or the adoptive parents in what is said and what isn't said. We're taking it all in. So we are impacted. And when we don't know, oftentimes a version of the narrative that we land on and become convinced of is we must have had. It must have been something to do with us based on our developmental maturity or immaturity, I should say, of our brain and the lack of, like I said, that ability to zoom out and understand all of the different nuance and reasons. We assume a very egocentric reason because that's all we can do developmentally. So the version of the narrative we land on is without any of that information is I'm not worthy. This person left because of something about me. And we then carry that with us without the reality, you know, well into adulthood. And in that state of wondering, very interestingly, some of us can come up with other, you know, fantasies or narratives where now not only do we need a sense of certainty about why they left us, we have a whole, 
hole. We have a abyss, right? We have a <laughs> lacking of a narrative about this even person. And our mind can begin to create a million different stories about what they're doing, whether or not we have access to what they're doing, because the reality of it is they might be creating a new life with a new family, even more strengthening that reality that we're not worthy and complicating matters fully. So again, of course, there's many individual variations in how we'll fill that certainty or gain our sense of control. Again, I think what unifies all of us is that core belief. This person left, this applies to any caregiver who leaves outside of fathers, mothers, you know, whoever it is that is core and important and dependent on when they leave, if we're very young when it happens, more often than not, we land on they left because of me. The more you embark on a journey of healing or just sheer awareness and allowing yourself to be embodied actually in your body, feeling the physical sensations that we then give language to as our feelings, that actual feeling, the embodiment of being aware, being safe in our body and being able to witness objectively, I guess in a way, the voice that I keep hearing in the back of my mind is when you stop lying to yourself. <laughs> because for me, let's just say it that way. It's when you stop lying to yourself. And now this might not be you, maybe try it on and see. I know for me, I put on a lot of pairs of rose-colored glasses. And I had about 12 pairs of rose-colored glasses on while also on a pretty concrete foundation of awareness and seeing a lot of layers and having gone in depth. And I've learned that year after year and step after step continuously, I think I've been intentionally on a healing journey for almost a decade now, really looking inward and sort of piecing things apart and separating myself and that being that is me from the things that happened, the meanings that I made, the habits that I learned. As time goes on with that consistent practice, deeper, more impacted traumas and even maybe memories are recalled, are brought to the surface. And through that, it has really illuminated how important it is to continue reminding myself that we are malleable beings. We are flowing beings. Nothing is locked in concrete. No relationship is locked in concrete. Everything is going to ebb and flow. And when I just think back to my own childhood, I mean, I was born into both my parents were there. My dad was very present. He was actually the more maternal one when I was very little, like cleaning bottles, changing diapers. Now that didn't last for very long. He then left, but I had the experience of having this present father who is in my life. Then seeing that turn very volatile, seeing him struggle with his own addiction and opioids and alcohol and the violence and neglect and drugs that were in the home to then the next phase, him actually leaving. And suddenly I'm seven, eight years old and my dad has left to move a thousand miles away after he was released from rehab to go be with his quote unquote family, which was very confusing to me as a child. I have this person here, then suddenly I'm seeing addiction. It gets very violent. Now, poof, they're gone because they needed support. And then in that window, it was probably, it was a number of years before I even reconnected and saw him again. And that 
ebbed and flowed in this inconsistency of he's in my life for a few years. He's not in my life. I haven't seen him for 10 years. I see him for three days. All of that was in my child brain, in my child body, in a very inconsistent way. So I would explore for yourselves as well. Maybe you had a consistent father figure or father there that was present throughout all of these years. Maybe you never did. Maybe in like Nicole's experience, you had a physical father present or father figure that was present, but actually wasn't emotionally there or attuned or available. And just like our journeys are going to ebb and flow because people do, so does the healing and our reaction and even our view and our perspective of it. Where I am right now in relationship to my father who is still alive is very different to where I was in relationship with him a year ago when we created that father wound episode. And we'll continue going a little more into that, but that's something to keep in mind that as you grow, as you listen to these podcasts, as you look within, as you continue on your own journey, you're going to continue seeing things from a new and higher vantage point, which is going to give you more objective perspective into seeing something that may have actually been too painful to witness or see before. And the difficult reality, though empowered shift happens, is before we're conscious of this impact, it's still impacting us. (laughs) We're just disempowered or we're not able to not only consciously witness it, but take that next step, which is creating change in those dynamics. So even for those of us who aren't aware that we're carrying that wounding and that however it was in childhood is still actively impacting our current relationship with this father and their presence or lack of presence in our life, until we become radically honest with what that is, it will be still affecting us outside of our awareness. Though we gain a a more empowered stance and relationship with it, when we're able to acknowledge the reality, because then we give ourselves the opportunity to create change in how we're showing up within this relationship. Because I think anytime we're talking about a relationship with caregivers, and of course, these two moments in time, the designated days to celebrate our mother figure, Mother's Day and, and Father's Day, if we have active current relationship with these individuals in our life, chances are it is impacting our dynamic with them. It is this wounding from a childhood space is showing up in our reactive habits and patterns and maybe even our in our foundational dynamics with this person. So as we gain awareness of the pain, the wounding, and how we've adapted, then we give ourselves the opportunity to determine if this is still the type of relationship we would like to have because that's the choice that we didn't have in childhood. We We're given these relationships, so to speak, and we couldn't just leave, pack our bag, though now as an adult, we actually can through boundaries and new limits. We can change the dynamic and create a relationship with these core caregivers that might better fit or better be aligned with our adult needs. It makes me think of that imagery of the iceberg. You see the tip of it above water and then you have this whole 90% plus of it submerged under the water. And that to me is the wounding very much in a parallel teaching that we have of your ego, which is perfect because the previous episode to this one, um, was what's the name of it? How to, how to do ego work, I think is the name. Um, it's the first of a, a few episodes that will come after this father's day one on ego. And 
a visual of picturing our ego is it being in the driver's seat. Most of us think we're living our lives, you know, intentionally creating all of it. And then some people wake up and are like, how did, how's the same pattern happening? How am I in the same place when I'm 40, 50, 60? It's just Groundhog's Day over and over. Well, it's usually that autopilot. It's usually something else running the show, usually that ego in the driver's seat. So when we're befriending our ego, we're not going to shame it or make it wrong. It serves a purpose. It was created from something, from that wounding, from the submerged iceberg, and created in a protection of yourself. So when we picture the ego in the driver's seat and realize the integration, that really the work and healing is to integrate that ego, befriend it a little, put it in the passenger seat, toss it in the back, put it in the trunk, not get rid of it but take the steering wheel back in your own hands. Our abandonment, I keep hearing this key word coming up, abandonment wounding that a lot of us feel from not just our fathers, though our parent figures in general, that's that submerged iceberg. That is, it's it's secretive in a way and very sneaky because whether we're aware of it or not, that often is like exactly what Nicole's saying, what's projecting out and what's running the show. When I describe my 12 pairs of rose-colored glasses, what I'm describing is me years into a lot of witnessing, being very aware. I've been hyper aware and hyper vigilant of human behavior and patterns since I was a little girl. That was a survival mechanism that I've now turned into my life's work and sort of reframed. Though I'm not naive now, I was before, as to where that came from. It came from that witnessing. And even with that awareness, I didn't really fully get how deeply impacted my abandonment wounds were quite literally like pushed into my body, pushed into my cells until I chose to do the scariest thing that there ever was and commit to consistency, commit to being consistent in building a relationship with myself, commit to being consistent in building a business and showing up for a community and now a public global membership, and to commit to the consistency of being in a life partnership and an intimate relationship with two other human beings. That relation was so close to home, so vulnerable and so just intimate by nature, even building a business because it's authentic to me. Intimacy doesn't mean sex here. Intimacy means that very vulnerable. There's no avoiding the physical sensations that I'm having here. And in facing and welcoming those things into my life now, I have seen just how much, even in my healing, I still put on a smile and thought I was at this layer of, you know, well, I forgive my dad. I do have compassion now and awareness for the abuse that he endured from his own father, the abuse that he endured from his siblings, from his schooling, the bullying, how he was physically, emotionally, and mentally abused. I have compassion for that. It helps me understand how he was towards me. It does not excuse it. And on that father wound episode, we had a theme of forgiveness sort of ebbed and flowed into that conversation. And I read somewhere recently, this really stuck with me. I don't know who said this. So if you've heard this from one specific person, of course, shout them out, though. I don't think anyone really owns any thought. 
And the sentiment is that you can forgive a person. You can choose to forgive a person. That's for yourself. You never have to forgive an experience. And that really hit home for me because I think when I thought about having my dad in my life or the relationship with him now, because I can be so compassionate and understanding of why he was the way he was and he didn't have the tools, I wrapped my forgiveness of him a little bit into forgiving the whole situation because I could understand it. When really those are entirely separate things. So if you're struggling with that forgiveness or some experiences where you were really abused or traumatized and that absolutely was not deserving, there's never, ever a need to forgive an experience that was not deserving or should not have happened, especially when you were on the receiving end as a child. You also don't have to ever forgive a person, though there is a massive space of empowerment and opportunity and growth for yourself, not for the other person. Forgiveness has nothing to do with the other person. It is for you. And when you choose to forgive the person and create that separation from the experience, it also offers some traction for you to really start forgiving yourself. Because as a child, the first person you make wrong in a traumatic experience is not the other person it's yourself. So when my dad was abusing my mom and abusing us, when my dad was using, when my dad straight up left and abandoned us, I did blame myself. I did so deeply believe he didn't want me. He didn't choose me. And it's funny because I, I do find myself now as an adult, a grown woman chosen to be in relationship with two other women. And I also am very cognizant to the fact that over the years, I see my relationship and perspective of men was so conditioned so early on to be so untrusting. I feel so unlike myself with men because there still is a deep sea that I can feel this wounded part of me, that iceberg that does come from a wounded abandonment place that is a just sheer lack of trust. It's interesting. And I'm even thinking about, and again, not to go down gendered lines. So I think oftentimes, you know, statements are made in very gendered ways around men in particular, where they're not supposed to be emotional, right? Even the fact that earlier I acknowledged like my, my father's lack of emotional attunement wasn't because he was inherently or intrinsically internally unable. My dad actually is a very emotional He is. Man. He is the sweetest man too. He I love is. And if you're ever listening to this dad, you are a very emotional man. And that is part of the difficulty is he didn't have that safety and that security and the tools himself to be able to attune to his own emotions to then allow him to attune to mine. And so from my own experience, and I'm imagining many of you are relating, it was of no ill intent. It was of no, you know, um, addictive behaviors where things got, you know, out of control and unsafe. And my dad didn't leave. Yet again, back to this idea of, of acceptance, because I truly believe that is the first step to forgive before we are able to let go. We have to accept the reality of what was or what wasn't and all of the different ways that we feel about it so that we have the emotions available to us to actually release or let go of them of. And even for those of you who resonate, as we often present different sides or different, you know, kind of even alternate experiences, even if there wasn't an egregious boundary violation or abuse, as was the case with me, 
my conversation with myself is still one of acceptance, meaning as my dad continues to age and, you know, while he is in a lot of ways open, there is still a lack of ability because for him, emotions, I mean, now he's near, he's 86 years old. He's at, you know, near nine decades, right, of these old habits ingrained in him being overwhelmed by emotions, not knowing how to fully connect with someone else emotionally. And me being radically honest, not telling myself a lie and accepting only then allows me more of an empowered choice in what type of relationship I have with him, which for a lot of my inner child means continued mourning, giving up the possibility, right, that we do evolve to a deeper, more connected emotional space. Um, so acceptance. And again, I know we all have different versions of relationships. And I think you and I oftentimes, um, you know, kind of illustrate beautiful, differing examples, though the reality of it ultimately is the same. When we are when we become aware of our wound and sit in radical acceptance of it, we are then given more information to decide. And that is much more of an empowered place than the habit that many of us have that I know that I had for decades, which is to do not that, but to instead wish or point or demand the person. So in my, you know, demanding my dad be somehow different, right? While logically it might seem so easy, I understand underlying what my dad would have to do. He would have to get really in touch with his body, really in touch with his, I mean, everything we talk about. And that's such a journey. So sometimes the greatest gift of love we can give with someone is that acceptance and allowing them the reality to inform how it is I continue to show up in this adult relationship with this other now adult being. And choice is always yours. We all have the power of choice. And that's one of those things, mm -hmm. whether we like mm -hmm. to admit it or not, we do have choice, choice in how we respond, choice in the relationships we choose to keep, choice in the relationships that we choose to seek and cultivate and create. And as you're talking and mentioning your dad and his, you know, emotional self, I'm giggling a little because Lolly, our third partner, who's her father is reminds me of my father in a lot of ways too, has a very sort of feminine flair, has a, an essence about them and an emotionality. And if is that even a word? Emotionality. <laughs> um, and I think back to a story I've shared before, maybe on one of these podcasts of my dad when he was a really young boy and he was in his mother's lap and he was telling her how he saw people. And he saw colorful auras around some people. And now, even to some of you listening, it might be like, well, it's a little too far. What do you mean he <laughs> saw things around people? I fully, I've never seen colorful auras around people. And I fully get that some people have. And you know what? Who am I to say that they haven't? I mean, we're here. I woke up. My lungs are breathing. My heart's beating. I didn't ask it to. We're all just here. So I believe in anyone's experience. Well, I wouldn't say that. So I believe in the experience of him sharing this and whether you believe it or not, try it on as a fictional tale then to get the meaning of it. He shared this as a vulnerable, I think maybe around five years old with his mother. And the first thing his mother did was hug him and rock him and say, you know, Jimmy, never tell that to your father. Never share this with your father. And his mother was a very beautiful open, just spiritually sort of connected being. All of the women in his family tend to be. I noticed this with the women on my family's side too. Spirituality seems to be the core connector in both. And with that comes 
this like emotion or creativity. And I mentioned Lolly's dad because Lolly's father and my father are very similar. I think would probably have shared clothes and friends. <laughs> my dad's a florist. Like her dad's really into, you know, his nice shoes, that type of thing. And they're the same age. They were born around the same time. Whereas while Nicole and I are similar in age, her father is more aligned in age with my father's father. And that is really something to note. I think it's important to note that and really give ourselves some perspective to how wildly and rapidly times are changing now, just in our own lifetime. We've witnessed that. Now think about a father, Nicole's dad, he's what, 83? He was born in 37. Born in 37. Now imagine being a person in general, born in 37, and then a man born in 37. And the relationship that society and culture had around who you were supposed to be, who you were not supposed to be, how you were and were not allowed to express your emotions, even how you were and were not allowed to feel certain emotions. That all factored into, that was the weather around her dad when he was a sponge being created. Then my dad, a few generations later, grew up in the 60s and 70s, a little more open, a little more flowery here in the United States amongst all of the current events that are happening. And you can definitely see those that conditioning and that societal conditioning or just influence and how that impacts a human being. I appreciate you bringing that up and so much of what you're describing, this conditioning, even the error with my dad being born so soon after the Great Depression mm -hmm. that we suffered here in the United States and all of the financial insecurity. And again, coming from an Italian-American cultured household where they're very much where it divides along the gender line, so much so that my mom and dad have acknowledged to us, you know, the kids that there were determined roles in the home where my mom had this designation to, to make dinner, to wash clothes, to tend to the children. And my dad was responsible for the finances, for holding the job, sometimes multiple jobs while going to school at night to make sure that the financial needs of the home were met. He tended to the garden that we had out back. He was the one responsible for, quote unquote, playing with us kids, right? It was very structured. So saying that to say, you know, one of the things that kind of has been a theme in my relationship, not only with my dad, but in my own relationship, my own thinking, my own beliefs is the impact of those roles specifically around financial security or insecurity. And with all of that responsibility, because that's what my dad was told, that was what the man, quote unquote, of the house did, right? The responsible father made sure he kept the home, which immediately rules out any room or space for emotions, right? Because the needs to care for a family, we were a family of five by the time I came along, were quite great. And in my dad's thinking, in his beliefs, in his actions or reactivity in the home around scarcity, fears of not having enough, worries when, you know, there were financial um, struggles in the home, when, you know, things were tighter financially, especially when I came along so late in life, they didn't plan for a third <laughs> child that, you know, now needed the right high school education and the Ivy League college and, you know, all of this financial responsibility falling on my dad. So again, not only would emotions not be a priority with my dad coming from a very real lived experience of a generation that lost everything they had. I mean, 
the depression, you know, and, and the impact that had not only in terms of beliefs and actions, but physiology, all of the impact of my dad being created in a uterus of a mother who was dealing with, right, all of these unmet needs really is something so ingrained now in my dad, right? A lot of fear-based thinking, a lot of worries about not having enough. And this would come out in how he would share, you know, his thoughts, his beliefs about the world with me and the suggestions and urging he would give as I, you know, began of the age where careers started to become a conversation and his very rigid thinking in terms of what would give the most financial security. And as I started to talk about wanting to do my own thing and be my own boss and have my own practice, it wasn't that my dad didn't want to support me and my unique path, which might've been different from him. That scarcity belief was so palpable that even hearing me say that just activated this fear from a very well-intentioned place. He wanted to make sure that I didn't have to carry the weight of financial insecurity. So I started to hear, you know, things of concern of working for yourself and fear and wouldn't it be just easier to have a consistent paycheck and everything that comes along with that. So kind of introducing generational, you know, kind of languaging experiences, sociopolitical. I mean, now we really are expanding the possible impact of these context outside of, you know, times in which our parents were born, though very much that then leak into how they're showing up in our relationship. And then for many of us are how we continue to express those beliefs into our adulthood, oftentimes in relationship with them. And this whole window of awareness and really objective reality, yeah, having an understanding of when they were born, what the world was like, X, Y, and Z, basically the last 10 minutes of this podcast, none of that negates your experiences. It doesn't negate the trauma. It doesn't negate whatever you went through. It doesn't negate your heartbreak. Whatever is there for you in general, and especially whatever is there for you in the conversation with your father or father figure, or maybe your children's father. I know we're a lot of us aren't even thinking about Father's Day or this honoring of the dad in relation to our own dads. Many of us look at our partners now who are the dad to our children or other dads around us. And it's very helpful and very necessary, I believe, to begin creating that separation, that The experience was experienced. You can't unexperience it. It happened. You can't unhappen it. The understanding of it is there. You can create it. You can cultivate it. You can build compassion around it. It's objective. It can even remain neutral. Those those going and beginning to be filtered into, if they aren't yet for you, in two separate places may be very helpful because they allow us to also honor and nurture ourself in the same experience of dealing with this. Maybe we're taking separation or distance from that father figure. Maybe there's a a lot of wounding, or maybe we're still coming to terms with this traumatic experience. We can just live in our experience of it and tend to ourselves with a compassionate understanding without having to deal with the other person at all. But it's going to take moments of being in silence, actually being with yourself to actually look and to go within, to see how you actually feel. And when I say how you feel, not immediately going to, oh, I feel angry. I feel happy. Feelings are the mind's language, the words that we're giving 
to the physiological sensation or the emotion, the energy in motion in our body. We talk so often about being in our body and being embodied. That is an incredibly important and foundational tier in holistic healing, holistic psychology. It has to happen too in your body. So becoming aware right now as you're listening what are you physically feeling? What sensations are in your body? Do you notice a pit in your stomach? Do you notice your palms getting sweaty? Do you notice a tightness in your chest or maybe a drooping of your shoulders? I noticed at some point earlier you were speaking and it, my heart sort of just broke again for a moment, actually felt like it broke open again for a moment when you were, Nicole, talking about, whoops, our kitten is here on set if you're watching the video. <laughs> Um, Nicole was sharing about possibly witnessing your father or father figure going and raising another family. And that had completely skipped my mind for a moment that what I had also just shared with Nicole earlier this morning was, or maybe it was Lolly, someone. It's kind of a joke to me now, though laughter is also my first access to just allowing myself to feel it in the first place. If I can feel it, I know, or laugh that laughter authentically for me at some point is probably going to turn to tears, which I will welcome and invite forward because they're already there. But it's even that laughter is good. When you notice yourself laughing about something really traumatic, I know I'm not the only one. We see this a lot. That's a, a very common response to something traumatic or something painful. And while I can giggle about my dad now going and raising other families, that's a deep wound. I did watch my father leave our family to go move a thousand miles away to immediately get remarried to someone who was 21 years younger than him, I think, was closer in age to me, and had three children. He raised these three children for a number of years like his own until they too then got divorced. And it's been about 15 years since that family has happened, and my dad currently is the, the babysitter or caretaker of a friend of his now who has two small children that are maybe around five, six, or six and seven. And he's been looking after them as their primary caretaker, aside from their actual mother and father, since they were babies, since they were about one. And you know, as abusive as my dad's past has been and him when he's in active addiction, he is very nurturing. He's very maternal. My father is much more of that maternal figure. He's very good with children. When he can be present, he relates to them. He's attuned to them. He looks after them. I would actually trust my child, you know, if it was for a couple hours or a day, I would trust them in the care of my father. Though I have now again watched him, and he still is currently a caretaker of these children, recreate his third family and be a father to these children that is a dad that I never witnessed. I never got that father. And while I'm witnessing him being that way, I also am still this little girl inside that, you know, has built her business, has her established life, is a couple four or five years into it. We're doing really well. What's the first thing I want to do? I want to run home and bring the gold to my family. I wanted to go and give all of my money to my family. I wanted to take care of everything for everyone. In all honesty, I have enabled the shit out of my family for the last two years, and I'm now coming to a new awareness of that, especially in the aftermath of Jake's death. And 
that relationship now with my father has needed some new boundaries and some new separation and distance. Because while I can appreciate even how he is caring for these children in his life now, what I'm not willing to allow into my space at the moment is his endless and consistent, really uh, almost like a begging of Jenna, you could never know how much I love you. You could never know how hard this was to me. Like not even saying I'm so sorry, but really this man is very brokenhearted about the abandonment and the suffering he has caused for his children and is still unwilling to accept that I'm an adult now. I can see that and accept that. I forgive him. I don't forgive his actions and I do love him. And he's still the same conditioned, locked in autopilot person of that past that is literally unwilling to see me. He could be standing right in front of me, shouting from a mountaintop to this day how much he loves me, but he still doesn't see me. So now as an adult, I'm sort of coming full circle, I realize, in saying this to the experience you had with your dad. Now, granted, my dad and I are on opposite physical parts of the country. So he's not physically right in front of me, but through messenger and online and things, it is the experience of having him alive and here still connected and in front of me, but literally not seeing me and not getting my existence. I really want to just go back a second and touch on what you're talking now, but I really want to appreciate Jenna, you kind of describing even the visceral reaction you had while I was sharing something earlier and then reflecting that to all of you listening um, and celebrating. You're courageous. I mean, we, I think, acknowledge all of the listeners pretty much every episode that we have. And this is one of the reasons because this isn't an embodied emotional experience for a lot of you. Even putting on or choosing these episodes and hearing other people talk about, you know, their relationships with their fathers might in real time be activating much like you had the experience of your own. So while the stories that we're retelling up here might be different, what could be similar, right, are those underlying sensations or emotions. And interestingly enough, going into this idea of guilt and in so many ways, you know, my dad is much like um, very maternal, you know, very able. I watched him with my nephew, who is now as crazy as this is, uh, 16 years old. So, you know, to almost decades ago, watching him raise and, you know, be very present in my nephew's life and seeing how able my dad is to be expressive and there. And, you know, again, you know, understanding that a lot of the difficulty now, when, when I kind of think about navigating my, my relationship with my dad, a lot of my honest truth pertains to him and our past relationship together in my family. And, you know, I know for me and within my relationship with my dad, how difficult and how present guilt is. My dad's very aware of me, my new perspective, my relationship <laughs> with my past, the fact that I shout out from the rooftops and books on podcasts and all of the things. And while my dad is 100% supportive, sees the big picture, the reality of it is my dad in, in very much direct words has told me he still struggles in a lot of moments to listen, to take it in, to allow himself to fully and emotionally hear the impact of that early environment, so much so that he won't listen to certain things that I say or certain pieces that I write because it's just too close to him. And then the reaction I get is much like, sounds like your dad, in terms of this you know, deep pit of despair, of guilt, and almost a helplessness of not knowing 
what to do with it though in that a little victimy a little a little that though the shift the empowered shift for me has been historically i wouldn't have said the things that would have upset someone enough to shift them into victim mm-hmm. mode what i now do different is i honor my truth regardless and in moments I don't look to him to affirm it because now, and this is again why this process is much more complicated than a quick fix, behind the scenes, I've learned to emotionally attune to myself. I've created emotionally available relationships. I'm teaching myself how to receive support from other people. I'm honoring my truth day in and day out outside of my relationship with my dad. So now I have those needs filled. So when I now interact with my dad, And I talk about some painful aspect of my childhood and he can't hold space for it. And it becomes more about his reaction. I don't have to resolve, absolve him of the guilt. I've offered, you know, direct, you know, in in direct statements told him that, you know, guilt is, is not necessary. I more than accept, you know, his apology. The guilt is now his to work through. And similarly, in a much less emotional way, because professionally I've expanded my own beliefs and mindset from one more grounded in scarcity to one much more open to possibility. And I have supportive individuals in that realm of my life too, who can support my more expanded thinking and my desires for the future in a way that my dad can't. So similarly, I'm very intentional while I do share a lot about my professional world and my business, because that is one area that my dad and I, he has an understanding and we can connect on though our ingrained beliefs are different. He's still going to filter everything that I'm so excited about creating in this infinite future of possibility through his fear. And it's not that he's not supporting me in the moment. It's that he's not able to see my perspective. Though if I you know, come back from that wounded place and take it personally and expect him to be different, then I'm going to leave that exchange much more wounded as opposed to now I'm selective. I might share things with him. He might you know, somewhat offer his fear-based reaction. I don't take it personally. I understand. And or I might choose not to share certain things with him and take them to the relationships that I know people can meet me in that same space. So just wanted to kind of go through the practical application of what this can and would look like, though, again, I'm fast forwarding decades at this point of, you know, this realization, settling in, creating space to even you know, be curious about what I might feel to then get clarity on what I could possibly feel to then allow myself to process it to then create all of these other alternative relationships so that now I can show up in this empowered space where I can make my relationship with my dad much less personal than it was in my childhood. The visual of actually picturing another person with multiple pairs of sunglasses on in front of them has helped me a lot. I know there are a lot of other visual learners here. And when you, it's funny because you have glasses on right now. <laughs> I love you in glasses. And when you're talking about your dad and this fear, his response is coming through the filter of fear. He's not really hearing Nicole. It's going through that filter. It's like fear is a pair mm-hmm. of sunglasses that he's wearing. And that is the filter in which everything is going through. Now, here's the thing about these sunglasses or whatever you want to envision it as you cannot take off another person's pair of sunglasses as much as we want to. You know, Nicole might have walked around and been like, whoa, Jenny, you've got like 12 pairs of rose colored glasses on. Hello, get into reality. That would have made no difference. It actually probably would have done the opposite and caused some friction. It's the same with our parents, it's the same with every other human being. You cannot 
fix or change another human being. The goal of fixing and changing another human being just right from the start is signaling something's wrong here. There's something to fix and change, which automatically has you in opposition of reality, in opposition of the universe, because reality is that reality is the way that it is. When you can acknowledge and begin to see that someone else does live life through their own set of sunglasses and their multiple pairs, and that you only have the power to remove your own, it reframes the focus back here on something you can actually do. And the awareness of someone else's filters and pairs of sunglasses can expand your compassion and your heart to them, which will allow you to stay more connected to your own heart. It doesn't then insert, oh, great. Well, I see that's through fear. So let's just get cracking and work on my dad's fear so he can actually (laughs) listen to me. That has to be something that he chooses that he is willing to see much like my dad now is one of the, my dad's favorite thing. I've had to put some space here and (laughs) a couple of months ago, you know, said to my, I don't know when I will talk to you again. I love you very much, but I'm, I need this boundary now. Like I, I can't, I have enabled too much. I have come back on my own sort of running home to my family as if everything was golden because I have waited for this day to be able to create financial abundance and stability to run home to my family since I was a little girl. That was always an intentional mission was to save my family and make it whole again. And that doesn't work. And I have seen through an endless pursuit of 36 years to really get that that isn't how this is going to happen. And Prior to this now separation, where I am not in communication with my dad, what he said over and over and over is, Jenna, you are just like me. You have no idea. You're just like me. You're just like your father. And again, I'm on the receiving end of this thinking, are you crazy? Of I know. One, <laughs> I look exactly like you. Everyone says that. And two, I know that I'm you because I'm the one healing and confronting and shaking off and moving out literally generations and generations of trauma. Dad, the abuse and the trauma that you got, the bullying that you got in your life, that was passed on to me. Now, I'm not making you wrong that you passed that on. That's my reality. That is what's so. I'm actually dealing with all of that now. I see my own reactivity or moments when my resources are low or I'm wounded or in a pain body where I've reacted in the same way as he would have in my childhood and it spooked me. And I've thought, oh my gosh, I thought that I had dealt with, that I had forgiven, that I had healed and accepted these parts of me when really they were so painful and so impactful in my development as a child that I tucked them so far away that I created this magnificent life. And it really took a magnificent life through intentional work. It's not like poof, I snapped my fingers and you know suddenly my reality is the way it is. I have been intentionally becoming my own best friend and doing this work for well into a decade now. And even still, my boundaries with him are going to have to change. And even still, 
I found myself at 35, 36 years old, still trying to beg and plead with my father on Facebook Messenger that like, no, dad, I really do get it. I know that I'm you. I see the world like you. I love you. I get your courageous heart. And this is still so recent. I haven't really shared much about the current, current events of my family over this last year, because it does seem like the can of worm of trauma for the Weakland family has just been ripped open again, though it has been very humbling to really be honest with myself now that even through all of this sharing and all of this work, there was such an embedded part of me that I didn't even see that was still going and chasing after him, still wanting him to know that I see him, still wanting him to see me so that he can get that I actually see him. And that is just not something in this lifetime that is on the path for him. And that is really okay. I really appreciate you sharing um, up to speed real time what is happening because what you're offering, you know, for all of us and all of you listeners is the reality that when we're in that, you know, acute stage, if you will, of healing back when similarly, I took almost upwards of two years separated. And again, this is not, I don't think either you or I suggesting to anyone to cut off contact, to develop or to put up that, you know, kind of hard stop of a boundary though. That is what it took for me to create that space to make room, to explore how I felt and to give my feelings life. Because the reality you're describing is how complicated it is and how natural. If we're in an active relationship with these caregivers, with our dad for this conversation's purposes, and we're, you know, giving light and being present and honest with all of this wounding, it's really natural to have however it is that we feel. We feel angry. We feel resentful. We feel hurt. We're grieving all that we don't have it's or did not have within this relationship. It's so natural that the next time they call or we're over for Sunday dinner or whatever it is, that that anger is palpable, that that grief is palpable. And it's really natural then that that comes out either in a reactive way or in this much more kind of externally directed way where we're almost demanding, right, this person see and hear our pain our wounding, our reality. And that might not be possible because again, that's not anything that we can necessarily control or not. What we can do is give ourselves the gift of giving those feelings space within our own life and acknowledging that when we do continue, as we do continue to interact with those people, and I think this is a very difficult truth, though I, I feel called to say it right now, any emotion we're feeling, whether it is on the grief end of the spectrum, the anger end of the spectrum, or a million feelings complicated into one, there are responsibility. When we show up in action in relationship with these people, right, to drop back into these reactive habits and act in ways that are self or other harming is really our responsibility. Yes, of course, these core relationships, the ways they did not or did show up in our past, had to contribute or were a contributing factor Though, again, I want to reiterate and emphasize our emotions are, are our own. So sometimes the best gift we can give, and again, it might not be ceasing contact altogether like you or I did make the difficult decision to do, though it might mean finding the way to create this space that we need so that we can take that responsibility for our emotions. Because it's very natural to want to externalize blame, to desperately need to hear or them to do something differently so that I can feel differently. Though, again, the reality, how I feel when I'm interacting acting with anyone. This includes outside of, even with my father, any relationship I have, how I feel 
is my responsibility and is often colored more in my past, which is why, again, it is important to explore what boundaries, what space, what is needed, what changes are needed so that you can create a little more freedom for yourself so that you can begin to show up much more intentionally instead of very understandably often reactively. Mm-hmm. It's a much more beautifully and articulately put way of saying stop lying to yourself because I think we do all have these pings and this wisdom and connection to ourself. And I love that you're talking about the responsibility of our emotions and grief, which is such a big one here. And those emotions that you're describing and the emotions that we feel are always, always, always valid. Our response and how we react to those emotions may not always be valid or just as much as someone may have harmed us or given us this life altering grievance that does not then give permission to go do and harm and create the same wounding for that other human being. And I truly believe, and I know Nicole, you feel the same that from our truest heart-centered essence and space, our authentic self, we don't have a desire to go and do that because when we are really connected, we're in this equanimity, like this strong rooted tree that is connected to our heart space. We don't want to go back and harm another, no matter how volatile the action was. And I know that can be really hard to believe or even to wrap our head around because there are incredibly traumatic and tragic and really downright awful events that happen all around the world every day and that very likely may have also happened to you or your children or someone you love. And this is why it's so important to create that separation, I believe, when we think of forgiveness that Never is an experience needed to be forgiven, but there is empowerment and power and healing for you if you choose to forgive the person. Now, when you hear that, I by no means am ever suggesting that you go and forgive someone in your life. That's for you to choose, though it's a space here to acknowledge us all coming back to the one thing we have control over, which is ourselves and our own choice choosing our own self, which ultimately is what you need to be willing to do if you are wanting to heal. Nicole mentioned a few minutes ago, you know, by no means are we suggesting that you cut off contact with your family or do the same separation that we've had. You might not even have a person in your life physically that there is to cut off contact with. And I'm really grateful that you mentioned that and want to, again, we could never illuminate enough that we speak from our own experiences and from what we witness. You are going to know and make the best choice for you. However, I will say if you are in an unsafe environment, then the choice is to get and seek immediate and local support and help to then remove yourself from that unsafe environment. It is not possible to go about healing or creating a connection on an authentic level that is true to ourselves and beneficial to ourselves if we are physically in an unsafe environment or in an emotionally unsafe environment. So in all of our speaking, please just hear that separation too, that 
when we it gets a little tricky and gray when we do talk about these personal relationships because there is very real abuse and fear there for many of us and on the contrary there are many of us who have experienced a lot of abuse fear trauma from someone who is now no longer here and uh, many people often ask you know what do i do when this person has passed away Writing a letter to people who have passed or speaking out loud to people is just as visceral and cathartic as if they were here. In fact, it actually creates a safe environment and a safe container where you are in your own bubble of safety and freedom to just let it unleash from your heart all of the things that you have repressed and needed and wanted to say to this person to even get some sort of, maybe it's not closure, but just a sense of solace and acknowledgement that you spoke the unspoken words that were here in your heart and you brought them outward to honor your truth. That creates a massive energetic shift internally and externally in the world that you're living in. I think it's so interesting, that kind of nuance here between the action of living in truth, whether by writing in truth, showing up differently, right, in truth and honoring of our new boundaries. And I think what gets tricky and going back to something you said earlier, because it's, it's really wise and I think it's based in, the, in a bit of research, which is that when we believe the truth in action is of hurting the other person, getting even revenge. And what I'm referencing is I believe they've even studied or at least somewhat assessed um, so when we're talking about actual like abuse, right, things, big, bad things that absolutely happen, they've studied the families of victims of criminals who were given the death penalty for various degrees of crime. And I know it here in the States, it varies, though. We still do have the death penalty where some people are sentenced to die based on the crime or the act. And essentially what I'm getting to is they've kind of vetted and assessed from these families who they open up um, the time of the death, the death penalty, when the death will be administered. They allow in a certain group of people, one of the group of people being the family of the victim. So the short of it is when they've you know assessed after these events, like how do you feel the better? victim, just for clarity of everyone listening, the victim of the the victim of the case in which they're being sentenced to death for or the victim as in themselves because they're the ones being put to death? The, the, the family, the family of the person being put to death. Thank you for clarifying. So the perpetrator of the crime that is now losing their life for it is invited in, as is the family of the victim who is either here or not here, depending on the nature of the crime that put the perpetrator in jail. So saying that to say, um, pretty overwhelmingly, they have found that people who have witnessed, right, this ultimate act of revenge, right, you've killed my sibling, my parent, whoever it was, my loved one, and now you too will lose your life eye for an eye. Of course, this is not me intentionally going down a political, you know, conversation about the appropriateness of the death penalty, though, what more of an extreme, right, act of revenge, and they found overwhelmingly that that actually doesn't make families feel better at all, um, that that person is still lost from them, that it is very complicated. So getting this ultimate act of like getting even, I do want to make a distinction between embodying, right, showing up for ourselves, honoring our truth and the difference between what I think is very natural. We want revenge. We imagine that if we were to do or inflict or this person would were to have inflicted upon them the same pain, that something again would be relieved in us. And again, I only bring up 
um, that death penalty scenario. And again, that that bit of acknowledgement or research, um, because I do think that that really gives us evidence that that isn't actually um, what is going to help us to feel better. It is the action of caring for ourselves, showing ourselves the love and compassion that maybe we didn't get and creating safety and security, whether with that person in our lives or without that person in our lives. It's not what we, I guess, more often that sometimes think will, which is having something kind of thrust upon them so that they get it or see it or can then shift or change how they are. Uh, that like took breath out of me as you were saying that. Um, I saw a reaction. There. Yeah. If you're watching the video, you can see I I just started to sort of choke up in tear. I need to actually collect myself for a minute here because it's such a conflicting place. And I have, I mean, my heart goes out to everyone who finds themselves in that experience, the experience of, you know, having someone that you love no longer be here or life drastically altered because of a tragedy or an act of hate or something that is just so heartbreaking. And then at the same time, then the heartbreak for that other family who is also the family and the loved one of the person that is the creator of this heartbreak and this tragedy or this new trajectory. And I think it really presences me too to, well, then that creator of that violence that yes, in some way needs to be held accountable. I wonder what things were like for them. I also wonder what this person was dealing with. I wonder what their submerged iceberg looks like and all of the wounding that is there. Though when something happens, you can't unhappen to it or you can't unhappen it. And you you do have to figure out, well, what do we agree on? What is accountable? What's not? And regardless of who you are in that scenario, the perpetrator, the victim, and no matter what perspective you want to see that from, these are real people and real people that we love. And I think my family has given me a little preview of that on both sides because I've seen, I've, I've become and understood the experience of being a victim when I'm no longer a victim, but because I, at one point, was a victim. And I have seen that scenario with my brothers as well, where, yeah, we were victims of our childhood, but as adults that grew and changed. And I've seen myself and my family be very hurt by Jake when he was in an active addiction. And I've seen what that run-in and turbulence looks like with the law and violence and restraining orders against people in my immediate family, with my brothers and my mother and so even within a family system and dynamic, I see both sides of the perpetrator and the victim. It's like your family is taking your family to court and it is split into two. And I think if nothing else, it's just a moment to honor that, like the pull of that heart that you feel because every human being has that same heart and also has loved ones no matter who they are or what that looks like, we do all know innately the experience of love. We wouldn't be able to have this anger and hate in the world if we didn't also know the contrast of love. It actually takes one for the other to exist. And as we're getting ready to end, there's a, a quote I saw on Instagram the other day I reshared that I want to read. But as you were just talking, I thought of something that I want to note really quick. It 
is a part of this topic, though a little random. Lolly and I were in a conversation earlier today and were this morning, and she asked if I remembered the show Real World, which for anyone in the U.S., I also know it was around the world, so you might know this. It was around in the 90s, early 2000s, um, a show on MTV, all of these just, you know, cast of characters that lived in a house. And one of these characters is named Theo, had a mohawk, very, you know, out there, adventurous, a little outrageous. And Theo apparently is still you know, doing things today is in the public eye. And Lolly told me was recently on Joe Rogan's podcast and they were talking about someone, we're not going down a political conversation though, someone in our politics today who is older and in their seventies who has been falling repeatedly recently. And this is publicized. It's on the news. You can see pictures of it, photos, videos, and you can also see that this is an elderly man. And Joe Rogan and Theo on Joe's podcast were talking about that public figure, political figure. And Theo was really resonating because when he was born, his father was 71 years old. And he had such a visceral and emotional just resonance and response in a different way to seeing this figure, uh, you know, in their older age falling publicly and still being in the public eye the way that they are because it brought them right back to the experience they had of their father, which is a, another perspective we haven't even acknowledged. While your father is, you know, older than mine and comes from another generation, this is and even larger, that's 71 years. So imagine the difference of society that those people grew up in, but also what that is like for a child coming into the world and seeing a father who is older, who is maybe near the end of their physical health or life within their body on this earth. Just And I, I share that just to open the perspective. I don't share that experience. I know Nicole doesn't. I know a select few, a smaller amount do, but even just to try that on and to think from this wonderment of a child, what it's like to see your immediate caregiver be someone who is almost going back to the cycle of life to their own infancy and how that could then impact and create who you are and how you show up and what you chase in the world until you become aware. I appreciate you bringing that up. And just really quickly, I, I do want to speak to that point because I can remember viscerally the moment where several years ago now, probably more like a decade, um, for as long as I can remember, it was my mom always needing medical care. I've seen my mom going undergoing very severe um, operations. So my dad was always, you know, active. He still is physically active to this day. He's tending to his garden down the shore right now as we speak. And so he's always been able, strong and able is what comes to mind. And I remember viscerally when he had something going on, I think um, with his prostate, again, over about a decade ago, and he had some version of a surgery. It was more minor than not, though, as always, the family showed up at his bedside. And I remember how destabilizing it was for me to see my dad, right? This abled man. It was always my mom, the one that was more physically vulnerable. And now I remember seeing him in his little hospital gown, sitting in that bed. And it really shook me in that moment. And now flash forward, he is, you know, nearing his mid eighties. And a um, couple years ago, even he had some issues with vestibular, with some dizziness and really did lose a lot of his ability to move, to walk. I mean, he's regained it very thankfully through committed daily movement. 
Um, though there was a period of time where it started to, again, shake me, seeing my dad naturally age, seeing him seeing it impact his own physical abilities. Again, not only was that different than what I was used to for him, I mean, for me, it really touched upon the vulnerable space of my mom and living right with another parent figure and all of the impact that her own physical inabilities have had throughout my life. So now it's compounded. And, and I'm really happy you brought up um, Theo. And I was very much a real world fan myself. <laughs> remember Theo? Um, I absolutely do. And I'm not surprised that Lolly knows exactly where <laughs> Theo is now to, to update us all, though I'm happy you brought that up because that, again, um, what, was an important part of this conversation for all of you out there who are navigating father relationships with fathers who are aging, you know, any parent. Um, as they age, I do think it brings up challenges, like you're saying, kind of bringing us back full circle. Sometimes it opens up the possibility that we even inhabit new roles, or if we were always the helper in the family, right, maybe then our our responsibility gets cranked up um, in those moments, though it is very real. And I just did want to offer the ways um, that, again, it it is coming up and I'm imagining will continue to come up for me as my dad continues to age and assumably his physical you know, abilities will at some point continue to, to decline. And with that is going to come a need to create space for yourself to grieve, whether it's something that is coming up just newly now, something that may be on the road ahead, or very likely for most of us, grief that has been so pushed down and not honored from literally lifetimes ago, mm -hmm. but specifically mm -hmm. in this lifetime, for the last few decades, many of us are dealing with grief or, or not dealing with grief, I should say, grief that is there. And regardless what your take on Father's Day, the father-child relationship, this whole conversation, there is grief there for everyone. Maybe grief for, you know, something that happened then or grief for what never was. And allowing ourselves to grieve, allowing ourselves to cry, that's the embodiment. And you might not think that there are tears to cry. I genuinely thought that I had forgiven my father. Things were good. I'm cruising in my genius zone now. I've created the life I've been speaking into existence for the last decade, quite literally. Everything's going to be here now. The missing piece for me was that the everything I wanted to be here now was a magic wand being waved over my family. I wanted to fix and change them. I accepted them on my journey in the way I had constructed them in my mind and hoped that they would be. I did not accept them in my journey up until literally right now for who they actually are without a make wrong of who they actually are. And with that comes grief. It, I can feel a lump in my throat even as I'm speaking now. And that is grief that is there. There are tears that will come. It's not something you can even choose to turn on. But the more you start to feel it, you get that lump in your throat. You feel the tears. Maybe Nicole or I have said something that's ignited or recalled a memory in your thoughts or maybe a memory in your body. Maybe you've noticed a resonance of that pit in your stomach or when Nicole shared earlier and I said how my heart felt like it broke open, maybe you felt little pings like that throughout listening to this podcast or watching it. 
And maybe you've allowed yourself to feel it. I know many people have told us, you know, you talking about your grief has allowed mine to surface and just pour out. I had to hit pause because I just started bawling. And then there's also probably just as many people, maybe if not more, who are listening, feeling that ping and saying, I'll get to it later. Don't have time right now. I'm driving in the car. I'm on my way to something. So I'm just going to push it down. I'm not going to honor it. I'm not going to honor it. And it's okay. I get that sometimes it's not the immediate time and place to be like, you know what? I've got to go deal with this grief right now. We do have more opportunity to make that call and actually take that opportunity to go be with ourselves in our grief far more than anyone's willing to admit. If I said there's a thousand dollars over there Mm -hmm. in that room, if you actually just take the moment to pause, step away from your desk or whatever conversation you're in to go get that thousand dollars and feel your grief for a moment, I bet a lot more people would choose to go and do it. But instead we push it away. Every time we do that and that we don't follow through to it later, we're not choosing ourselves. If anything in this conversation, I keep hearing in the back of my mind, these little bullets keep coming in to honor your truth and choose yourself. You have to choose yourself. To honor your truth, you have to speak your truth. To speak your truth, you have to know your truth. In order to know your truth, you have to choose yourself, which means you have to choose time with yourself. And even the most difficult things that will come forward when expressed in a heart-centered and truthful way, they will sit and live in the world in empowerment. I've learned the last two podcast commenters on this podcast I've learned are from my mother, who her name's, well, her name's Marsha Weekland. Marsha, <laughs> who I talk very openly about and have four years and my journey of um, doesn't live on her own, isn't necessarily willing to take care of herself yet, has somehow found our podcast and the YouTube episodes and can watch it from her phone, is commenting and a whole world I didn't know that I would experience. And immediately I got like sick to my stomach when I saw Marsha Weekland because I got scared as if I'm doing something wrong. And then just like a snap of my fingers in the same moment, this was such an affirming, talk about being your own proof. This really did like years in the making come full circle in that moment for me to have the proof and validation of myself to say, you know what, Jenna and little Jenna, you have been speaking your truth You've not been exaggerating or being dramatic or lying or anything. You've just been speaking your truth and sharing your story because I know in my story, there are pings of resonance with millions of you around the world who have the same avatar, came from the same family system or dysfunction. So even knowing that everything I have shared is out there in the world for her to receive, and she is receiving it right now, it's okay because I get to live in, I'm choosing myself and I know my truth. Now that I know my truth, I have an unwavering commitment to honor and to speak my truth and to allow anyone and everyone to respond and receive that however they want. That's for them. The speaking it for me is my act of healing and my act of forgiveness and really service to contribute back to everyone around me. But I'm putting emphasis on this here in particular for the nature of this conversation. I see quite globally, actually, 
a real difficulty with hearing particular things, sometimes even speaking of truths that some of us were conditioned to believe, quote unquote, belong within the family behind closed doors. Mm -hmm. We don't share things publicly, especially with when the truth involves our parents. So, and I'm saying that in the heels again, not to go down another rabbit hole. And again, different conversation, different parent figure, though two things come to mind. Um, a very popular book, Jeanette McCuddy, I think, believe McCready um, wrote, um, I'm happy my mother is dead. And I just saw societally the waves that, I mean, I know that's a pretty provocative title, though ultimately her, her, her book was about her own journey of healing, her trauma in her relationship with her mom and her feelings of somewhat of relief when that relationship was no longer on the physical plane. So sharing that to say, I observed, right, the waves that that caused. How, how dare someone speak so honestly, so negatively about a mother? And then more recently, which is what it called to mind, I watched, I think it was Drew Barrymore, um, similarly had a conversation, a very honest conversation, I believe it was on a podcast, where um, she too was sharing her in the process, in the throes of navigating her very complicated relationship with her mother, who is still alive. And why I'm sharing this is somewhere quickly after this podcast aired or wherever it was, where Drew was speaking very honestly. A And again, this isn't a statement on um, uh, on press or things of that nature, though some press outlet did pick up and covered the conversation and the way it was presented was, I think the headline was something along the lines of Drew Barrymore wants her mom dead. So much so that she- Drew says she wishes her mom was wishes dead. Her, and not completely taken out of context, not what Drew said, but sharing that to say, again, anytime we bring up family, some of us are culturally conditioned. I do believe it is societally. It's like one of those taboo topics. So much so that Drew then had to make a statement that that wasn't what she said at all and obviously spoke from a much more nuanced perspective, though. And again, this isn't a statement on the press, to be clear, though I think the reason I'm bringing it up, I should say, is because I think it really does reflect um, this societal, the taboo nature that speaking honestly about one's family in particular, one's family relationships, of course, that was both in the context of the mother relationship, though, similarly with the father, a lot of us have been taught um, that, yes, you can speak your truth in all of these areas, except for maybe this one area. So saying that to say, I do want to acknowledge the courage um, that it does take to stand in our own truth. And also, again, the space that we do need to create, because the reality of it is we might share our truth and we might hear that kickback. We might hear how we shouldn't have even said anything at all, right, because that's family and it needs to stay behind closed doors. Or again, we might not receive that acceptance that we're looking for, though we can create that acceptance for ourselves. We can affirm ourselves. We can find relationships and communities that create the space. Might not agree with our perspective, did not live our experience, so cannot affirm it in that way, though can allow our truth to be our truth for us. It's worth spending actual time being in your truth, discovering what that truth even is before you do express it outward because that will help you be that more, is equanimous a word? I really struggle to know if like a word is a word. It sounds right in my head to be more of that equanimous being and tree in the face of whatever response comes back because it can be confusing. You could have reaction. You could have someone telling you that never happened. It could just be a complete shock. I've shared before about 
violent experiences in childhood, seeing my father like hold my mom up by her collar or holding a knife next to her in the kitchen. And these are very vivid memories that are singed into my mind, like hiding around a corner in childhood. And I've spoken about them on the podcast before. Uh, my mother, Marsha, has come across those episodes <laughs> and moments. And that's that's how I first learned that she, I didn't know that she had found YouTube and commenting. I had no idea it was that far. But a few weeks ago, if not months ago, I got a bunch of messages that um, she was referring to that episode and the knife and my dad with her and the knife in the kitchen. And she was like, what? When did that happen? I, I have to know in this super just like shock, like what? And it was so, I just took a moment with it. I was like, whoa, okay. I don't know how I feel about this. This is such an interesting experience that was so vivid and so visceral for me, so much so that it happened 30 years ago and it's still here. And she is so disconnected from the experience that it even happened, which is also just such a, a micro example of the macro of that disconnection and that dissociation. And what I find so interesting about Drew in particular, Drew Barrymore, by the way, we love you. I love you. I am your biggest fan. You are one of the biggest roots of why I've chosen to become sober. It's just, we are so about the authenticity and the heart that you live and are just with in the world. And what you just said about Drew responding to those tabloids struck me so much because I don't know how old Drew, I'm going to talk to Drew like she's listening. Drew, I don't know how old you are, <laughs> though I imagine these tabloids have been stalking and really harassing you your entire life. And maybe you have spoken out to them before, though, when I watched the video of addressing, of you, Drew, addressing the tabloids, you could, I could feel how it felt inside of Drew's heart. I could feel that visceral reaction. You could almost see and hear in her voice the ignition of that wounding of now they've gone and said something and put words in her mouth that she said about her mother, which is already a seed of wounding and something for healing from the past. And that's just one example of 8 billion of us who all in some way have that extension and connection. No matter how removed we are, no matter how much we do or do not know our birth or biological parent. And so there's there's that to hold space for in addition to then the actual parent figure or father figure that was or was not in our lives. Imagine yourself with all of these tentacles coming out to you, invisibly connected to that being, because that's how our bodies and our hearts are responding. There is a connection there that is invisible. We don't have control over what happens to that connection on the other end, though we do have control. The only thing we have control over is how we respond to and how we heal and nurture that connection here on our end, which I really do think comes back to and boils down really to choosing yourself, being willing to choose yourself, spend time in these conversations, in this inquiry, discovering what your own truth is, and then swimming in this healing sea of discomfort to then be able to speak your truth out loud or live your truth out loud. Maybe that means actually expressing. Maybe that means doing the consistent practice of healing so that 
you're honoring your truth is through action where the life and relationships around you now become the ones that you've always needed and been seeking and running to since childhood when really all we've been doing is sort of in this hamster wheel of recreating the scenario that we had in childhood while we believe that we're seeking something different. I mean, my dad straight up left and all my life I've only been drawn to, which is so funny because who did I call into my life and choose? A married couple that I'm now in a throuple with two unavailable people who are thankfully expanded enough to have a different expanded version and conversation or possibility of love and relationship. Though I would be lying if I said that this wasn't the same It was the same stone on the path. I always sought people who I thought were so beautiful and connected to me, but that were also unavailable to me because who was my dad? Someone that I loved and admired and sought so much and was right there, but never actually chose me. He was never available to me. And I can look back on my life and just see how those attachment patterns have literally played into everything, even up until this day, where yes, now I have awareness and it's done with intention and choice. And this isn't a trauma reaction, the relationship we're in, though I can still be real and honest with myself because that's empowering that yes, of course, the next thing on my path (laughs) was another relationship that was then unavailable to me to people who love and admire me, but aren't choosing me they don't want me, that fulfilled the same comfortable story that my dad had created in my own childhood. Continuing with this embodiment of curiosity and really swimming in this sea of discomfort and curiosity and all that we've shared today, we really acknowledge and honor each of you who have created the time for yourself to listen to this episode. Maybe some of you I know listen to these episodes multiple times, take notes, come back to them. Or those of you who are watching on our YouTube channel, you have taken time for you. You have chosen you in action and actually have the opportunity now to see yourself as your own proof in taking that step for you. And we acknowledge you, we celebrate you and honor you and of course, would love to hear from you in whether it's reviews on the podcast or particularly in the comment section on YouTube to hear your stories about what's coming up around Father's Day or the father figure in general, these parent figures, even these holidays in general. Um, There are so many different dynamic experiences and lives being lived in the audience of everyone that is here on this podcast. And it is through your sharing of your actual experience that really opens up so much learning and so much healing for quite literally millions of people around the world. So thank you for your feedback, your reviews, your comments. Thank you for swimming in this curiosity with us. We look forward to hearing from you and we will see you for next week's episode.